It's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of John. Uh, last month, at the beginning of December, I wanted to um, pause from it and to be able to look at one of the Psalms in light of it being the Thanksgiving weekend, Thanksgiving holiday, and to get our minds right on the call to continually give thanks to God in everything and all circumstances um, with our lives. But we're going to be back in the Gospel of John this morning. We've been working our way through John's Gospel, and I invite you to turn to chapter 3. And we're going to pick up where we left off last time. It's been a little while. Last time we had covered verses 19 through 21 of chapter 3. And this morning we're going to cover the next section, verses 22 to 30. So John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. And I, as I said, I'm a little under the weather, so I'm going to be a little soft-spoken this morning. Now, it's in this section, in verses 22 to 23, that John's gospel narrative picks back up. Previously, we had looked at verses 1 to 15, at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, we read of Jesus' conversation with the prominent religious leader Nicodemus which took place one evening during Jesus' stay in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And it was during this conversation that Jesus explained the way of salvation to Nicodemus, who, as a leading religious teacher in Israel, ought to have understood that way of salvation. But he did not. And the reason he did not is because man-made traditions he had adhered to, adhered to and was devoted to had eclipsed the divine, clear testimony of Scripture. He was very religious, but tradition had pushed out the truth that God had made known through his word. Jesus told Nicodemus that, the, that only those who are born from above, born of the Spirit, and are believing in the Son of Man, will enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life. Now, before moving on to the next sequence of events, John wanted to emphasize and expand upon Jesus' words to Nicodemus for the sake of his readers, those who are reading his gospel, so that they might grasp the weight and significance of what Jesus said to this prominent religious teacher, to this man. Jesus made it clear that no one, not even religiously devout Jews, can obtain entrance into the kingdom of God and eternal life through any work or merit of their own. Rather, a person can only be saved through faith in him, he who is the divine son of man. And if the spirit has truly caused a person to be born from above, then that person will truly be believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and through believing have life in his name. So, what we saw in that next little section in verses 16 through 21, John, as the narrator, followed up Jesus' words with some further explanation and reflection for his readers so that they would not miss this call to believe in Jesus. After all, his purpose in writing this gospel was so that 
they might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they would have life in his name. That brings us to the next section, the section we'll cover this morning, verses 22 to 30, which begins with the phrase, after this. That is, after Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and after his stay in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover feast, John tells us what Jesus and his disciples did after leaving the city. Remember, Jesus had already, at this point, manifested himself to the public through his clearing of the temple in Jerusalem and through his working of miracles in the midst of the people in the city during the Passover feast. After this, here's what John says happened. We're going to read the passage, starting in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. We see at the beginning of this passage that after Jesus presented himself in Jerusalem by clearing the temple and performing signs in the midst of the people, he then went into the countryside with his disciples and they began to baptize people as John the Baptist had been doing. And at the beginning of the next chapter, the apostle John clarifies for us that Jesus himself was not baptizing people. What a claim, right? I was baptized by Jesus. Right, But he wasn't. He wasn't. Only his disciples were. That's what the Apostle John says at the beginning of chapter 4. It was his disciples who were doing this. Nonetheless, Jesus took the opportunity at the outset of his ministry to affirm and spread the divinely appointed work of John the Baptist in calling the people of Israel to repent, for the kingdom of God was at hand. The promised king was in their midst, And they were to make themselves ready for his kingdom by repenting of their sins and getting baptized as an expression of that repentance, as a sign of that repentance. This period of time, during which the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus coincided, is not recorded in the other Gospels. So we get a, a special look into this period, early period of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his ministry. The Apostle John shows us that Jesus did not wait 
until John the Baptist's ministry concluded before he began his own ministry. And John the Baptist continued his ministry of proclaiming a baptism of repentance for all the people of Israel. And he did that well after he identified Jesus as the Christ. He's already done that. He's already borne witness to him. But he continued his ministry. His ministry did not immediately end. And he actually kept on preaching and baptizing till he was forced to stop. Till he was arrested by Herod Antipas, who put him in prison and eventually had him executed. John the Baptist, as a prophet of God, and more specifically as the forerunner of the Messiah, had received his ministry from whom? From God. And what did he do? We see him faithfully continuing in the work that he had given, he had been given, and he allowed God to determine when his ministry would come to a close. Do you see that? So he was given this ministry by God. He was being faithful in it, and he allowed God, through circumstances, to basically close his ministry. Until then, he was going to keep on preaching, and he was going to keep on calling people to repent and baptizing them. Although it wouldn't be much longer, though, at this point, that time had not yet come. And so he was still baptizing. He was still ministering. And as the Apostle John says in verse 24, he had not yet been put in prison. And again, you have to think, by the time John wrote his gospel, it's the end of the first century. The other gospels have been in circulation for decades. The other gospels begin the narrative basically with John being arrested him preaching and then him being arrested and put in prison and then Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's kind of where they pick it up. But John puts this note in here, just as a reminder, he had not yet been put in prison at this point. And as we see in verse 23, John the Baptist was in a different area than Jesus was with his disciples. The exact location of the town that John the Baptist was in is not certain, although the general consensus is that it was somewhere in northern Samaria. And I just realized I forgot the map. I forgot the map. It was going to be right up there. But basically, the location where John is is northern Samaria. So if you think about Jerusalem, pretend my hand is Jerusalem, or or, uh, Israel. Jerusalem's in the south. They go up to Jerusalem because of the elevation. Galilee's up here. Samaria is in the middle. And then Judea where Jerusalem is, is down here. And the Jordan River is on the west side, or, oh, sorry, on the east side of the, uh, the country, on the nation. And John the Baptist is moving up and along the Jordan River around there. But he's actually further north now in Samaria, while Jesus and his disciples just were from Jerusalem. They're in the Judean countryside, so they're down here. All right, so they're not exactly in the same location. They're spread out, and John's further in the north. And so they're carrying on this work in another location. So Jesus and his disciples, still being in Judea, were not in close proximity to John the Baptist. They didn't just set up shop like right next to him, like, I'm going to start baptizing too. Right? They were in Judea. John was further north. However, news of their activity traveled north so that John's disciples learned of it. Again, you think, what was everybody in Jerusalem for? The feast. So now you have people going back. Now Jesus and his disciples are still in Judea baptizing, and people going back can bring word of that further north, and it eventually reaches the ears of John the Baptist's disciples. 
And we read in verses 25 and 26. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. First of all, the discussion John's disciples had with this Jew was more of a debate or an argument over the issue of purification. That, that word discussion is a little soft, but it's actually a more of a controversial discussion that's taking place. So we have a little debate going on here over the matter of what? Purification. That is, ceremonial cleansing from impurity. There were rites of purification prescribed by the law of God for the people. But in addition to that, there were many rites of purification prescribed by the religious leaders in accordance with the tradition of the elders. And we had learned a little bit about that when we talked about those stone water jars sitting there at the wedding. That wasn't just drinking water. That was make sure you better wash your hands. You wash everything. Everything's impure. You need to purify it, cleanse it. It was an obsessiveness over cleansing Purity that went above and beyond the law of God. And so in some ways was a burden for the people. But we have all these rites of purification prescribed by the religious leaders in accordance with the tradition of the elders, including the right of always ceremonially washing one's hands before one eats, lest one eats with hands that are defiled. So it's not just about get the germs off. It was a a spiritual practice. It was something to say, I'm ceremonially clean now. I'm not defiled. Now I can eat. But if I don't wash, I'm eating with defiled hands. I'm impure now. There were even more. Now, you think that's obsessive enough, but there were actually even more religiously zealous individuals who immersed themselves in cold water on a daily basis for the purpose of maintaining their purity. In light of this, A number of Jews did not perceive the significance or necessity of John's baptism for themselves. If they did their due diligence and even went above and beyond the requirements of God's law in order to remain ceremonially ceremonially pure, why would they need to repent and receive John's baptism? So he was a spectacle, a prophet of God, but if they were religiously devoted and were always keeping themselves ceremonially pure, They didn't really see that, well, the baptism thing, I'm good. I'm faithful. Perhaps in this discussion, it was a a question like this that the one Jew in verse 25 asked some of John's disciples as he debated the issue of purification with them, not seeing the need for him. Maybe he already sees himself as being purified, cleansed. They, in response, would likely have explained that remaining ceremonially pure was not enough to cover one's sins. And that repentance before God and receiving the baptism of repentance administered by John was absolutely necessary. This is the call of God for you to be baptized, everyone. Perhaps it was at this point that this Jew with whom they were speaking brought up the fact that Jesus, the man who had performed signs among the people in Jerusalem, was having his disciples baptize people back in Judea and that many were going to him. To this Jew, the claims of the uniqueness and importance of John's baptism seemed weakened by the fact that the disciples of Jesus were engaged in the same activity. It's like, well, they're also baptizing down there, but you said I need to be baptized by John? 
Of course, a little speculation there. We don't know. We don't know exactly what was said between John the Baptist's disciples and this Jew, but, but the Apostle John tells us that after John the Baptist's disciples debated the matter of purification with this Jew, what happened next? They went straight to John, urgently, to express their concern over the fact that Jesus was having his, his disciples baptize people as well, not even on the matter of purification. And they, they complained that many of the people were now going to him instead. John the Baptist's disciples saw Jesus as a a rival. Someone who's now competing with them, with their ministry. They had attached themselves to John and had been assisting him in his ministry, which in the beginning saw people from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan going out to be baptized by him. Many people from all over. But now... Although people were still coming to John the Baptist, as it's mentioned in verse 23, people are still coming. They were not coming in the numbers they used to. There's a drop in attendance, a decline. And the disciples seemed to think that Jesus having his disciples baptizing people was problematic, that it was interfering with John the Baptist's ministry. However, when we consider John the Baptist's response to his disciples who had become jealous of Jesus' rise in popularity that was beginning to eclipse their own ministry, we see that he did not share at all in their concern. Rather, we see the exact opposite. What did he do? They were freaking out. He rejoiced. He rejoiced. And he rejoiced Because this shift in popularity indicated to him that the goal of his divinely appointed ministry was being achieved. Here's what he says in verse 27. He answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Let's put this in a heavenly perspective, gentlemen. In other words, it was God's will that many people were now going to Jesus. God is sovereign over everything, is he not? And it is he who both gives and takes away. This really applies to everything in life. And John's specifically talking about this matter of the people's attention, the the draw of the people to Jesus. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, comes down from him, from heaven. And with regard to the things God chooses to grant us, well, we are expected to be faithful in using them for his glory, And to leave the results to him. John's disciples needed to take this to heart. And so do we. If we're to have true contentment, if we are to be at peace with one another, and if we are to give God the glory in all circumstances, we need to see it this way. That a person cannot receive one thing unless it's given him from heaven. And the things that we have been given, that we've been entrusted with. We're called to be faithful and to honor God with them, but to leave the results to him. Here's what one commentator says. God's sovereignty stands hidden behind all human claims. For John the Baptist to have wished he were someone else called to serve in a way many would judge more prominent would simply be covetousness by another name. 
If the person he envied were the Messiah himself, he would be annulling the excellent ministry God had given him. And what was that ministry? What was that ministry? What was his role? He was, as he put it, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He was the prophet whom God had raised up to call the people of Israel to repent and thus prepare the way for Christ, God's anointed one, the promised Savior and King. That's a privileged position. And it was a role in which he was pointing to this other one, this greater one. John reminded his disciples that his own divinely appointed ministry and thus his role was not to be supreme, but to be subservient. And thus it should only have been expected that the people of Israel would begin to flock more and more to this one to whom he bore witness. John made the subservient nature of his role abundantly clear. Back when he said to the delegation that came to him from Jerusalem, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He wasn't even fit. He saw Christ as so great. This one he proclaimed is so great. He wasn't even worthy of doing the most menial task that a slave would do. So great was the one he pointed to, the one he was being a herald of. John reminded his disciples in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Clearly these disciples were not as attentive to John's preaching as others were. If you recall, it was two of John's disciples, John, the author of this gospel, and Andrew, who were the first men to follow Jesus and become his disciples. They were disciples of John the Baptist, and then they followed Jesus, and they were the first ones to be his disciples. They immediately left John and began to follow Jesus after hearing John say of Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God. That's all it took. They're standing there, Jesus walking by, Behold, the Lamb of God. And they're thinking, we're going to go follow him. And they start following along, and, Rabbi, where are you staying? Can we hang out with you? And they did, and they stuck with him. However, with the disciples' read of here, what? There was some kind of disconnect with them. Those who chose to remain with John. They had been among him, right? They're hearing him preach, and yet they're still there. And Jesus is in Judea now. What's happening? I found this one explanation or commentary helpful. One commentator says this, the, just in, in reflecting on what's going on with these disciples. The followers of John the Baptist were not able to see that their affection for and devotion to the prophet made them unable to follow Jesus. I am sure that they would not oppose Jesus, for that would have put them at odds with their master. Nor did they deny that Jesus was, in some respect, unique, fulfilling the work of God in the world. 
But what explains John's firm reminder in verse 28? You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ. Are some claiming that perhaps John is the Christ? Are they unwilling to let John become less so that Jesus might be glorified? Has their investment in John become so all-consuming that they have promoted him to a place John would never accept himself? There's a natural human tendency to do that, to esteem people, maybe for good reasons, but then to esteem them more highly than you ought, to, to elevate them to a position in which they themselves might not even claim to be in. Basically, to, have a, um, to invest so much of your interest and attention and devotion to the man who maybe God is using, and yet to lose sight of the greater one, of Christ, to whom he's pointing you to. Become followers of men rather than seeing that men are used by God to point us to be better followers of Jesus. We've got to be careful with that. John, in order to help his disciples who were confused and complaining, in order to help them better understand the subservient nature of his ministry to Christ's ministry, gave the following illustration, verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John explained to his disciples that he was like the friend of the bridegroom at a wedding. What we today call the best man. It was an honorable position to hold, and he had an important role to play, but he in no way was to be the center of attention at the wedding. It was all about the bridegroom and his bride. In this case, the bride was Israel, and the bridegroom was Israel's long-awaited Savior and King, the promised Christ, Jesus Now, in a Judean wedding, one of the responsibilities of the friend of the bridegroom was to bring the bride to the bridegroom at the beginning of the ceremony. And that is precisely how you could sum up the ministry of John the Baptist. He was preparing Israel to meet her Messiah. And like the friend of the bridegroom, he rejoiced in the fact that the people were now flocking to Jesus. Seeing that transition made his joy complete, he said. Things were as they should be. He had faithfully fulfilled the ministry God had appointed for him to carry out. Of course he rejoiced. The people of Israel were called to repent and to make themselves ready for the coming of Christ. The Christ was revealed and announced. And now the people were going to Christ. And in light of the fulfillment of his ministry, John the Baptist recognized what God's will for him was in relation to Christ. And it was with great joy and satisfaction that he made the following declaration in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
This was the final testimony of John the Baptist before his ministry came to a close. This is the last thing that we have recorded of what he said before his ministry ended. He was rejoicing that the people were now going to hear from Jesus. And he said that Jesus must go on increasing while he himself, what, faded into the background. Faded into the background. One commentator writes concerning John the Baptist's last statement, It is not particularly easy in this world to gather followers about one for a serious purpose. But when they are gathered, it is infinitely harder to detach them and firmly insist that they go after another. It is the measure of John's greatness that he did just that. According to Jesus, John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp. But his shining was not to draw people to himself, but to lead people to Jesus, who was and is the true life-giving light of the world. He must increase, but I must decrease. I would say that would be good for every Christian to adopt as a general rule to live by. That would, that would be a righteous mentality for us to maintain. Not simply because it points us to or towards humility, it points us towards a godly virtue of humility, but more so because it points us to what our main priority in life should be. Make much of Christ and make little of yourself. How's that for a New Year's resolution? Today's January 5th, right? We can backdate it. Something we could... Resolve to do each year. Make much of Christ. Make little of yourself. Be seeking his glory and not your own. And we're really, we're really pushed to do that in our society. Self-promotion. Self-advancement. And again, we, have, we are blessed to, to live in, in the country we live in, to have the freedoms we do, the privileges, the advantages, certainly. And even in our system, our economic system, capitalism, the idea that you, you have upward mobility, that you're not stuck in some caste system for, for generations, right? You do have the means to, to advance yourselves, and that's a good thing. But sometimes that, that opportunity becomes all-consuming. And then we start thinking that that is my goal in life to just advance myself, to make a name for myself, to become great, to amass followers, clients, fans. We've got to fight against that. Take advantage of the opportunity, sure, but never lose sight that you, as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, should be making much of Christ Unless of yourself. Your focus should be his glory, not your own. Before we experience God's mercy in saving us, while we're in bondage to sin, we were living in rebellion against God. We weren't seeking God. And here's what our corruption, our sin, 
how it worked itself out in us. We, we lived self-centered, self-serving, godless lives. We were on the throne. The world revolved around us. That's what sin does. It makes us great and God small or forgotten. We believe we are autonomous. I will do according to my will. I will chart out my course. Destiny's mind to seize. I shall advance myself and do what I want. That's sin. That's rebellion. But God graciously, because by the way, that course, chart your own course, is the way it seems right to a man, but it's, way, it's the way that leads to death, right? And people going on that course, unless God intervenes, they are headed to death and they are headed to eternal damnation. They will perish, just like this whole world. It's passing away. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And God graciously opened our hearts to understand and believe that all things were made through and ultimately for his son. And that the world, in fact, revolved around him and not us. God graciously saved us so that, as the scripture says, we might no longer live for ourselves but for his son, Jesus Christ, who for our sake died and was raised. And now the goal is to make much of Christ and little of yourself. He must increase. You should be fading into the background. When people look at you, they should see Christ on display, Christ exalted. When they look at your life, not yourself exalted. And yeah, this thing I do on the side, some church stuff, some Jesus stuff. Maybe I read my Bible every now and then. If I make much of Christ, his will should be my will. My, my will should conform to his. My interests should conform to his. What are his interests? What, what is his will? Well, my, I should be interested in, in his word, in growing, in my knowledge of him. I should be interested in his church, which is his body, whom he ransomed and purchased by his own blood. The church should be a huge deal for me. Something I care about, the people whom Christ has ransomed. And I should have a priority of making Christ known so that other people might come to faith in him and receive the same kind of mercy and grace that I have. And they, they also might walk in newness of life. So remember that God saved you so that you might not any longer live for yourself, but for Christ, for your sake, died and was raised. Make much of him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and and giving us this glimpse back into this time in history when you sent your son into the world and and that that we can see the ministry of John the Baptist and as a man, as as a fallen man, and yet one whom you had caused to be filled with the Spirit and given an, a divine mission to, to be the forerunner, the, the voice proclaiming and announcing the arrival of Christ and calling people to make themselves ready. And we thank you for giving us him as an example of what we are to do 
in light of your saving grace, in light of your mercy towards us, that our priorities now have shifted and they should be and remain focused on Christ and on his advancement, his exaltation, his glory, his kingdom. May you conform our wills to his, our likeness to him, our interests to his. Help us to fight against the temptation to exalt ourselves. Help us to stamp out pride, selfish ambition, self-centeredness. Help us clothe ourselves with humility and exalt our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, in whom and through whom and for whom are all things. It's in his name we pray. Amen.